0: Good morning, everybody, I'm Professor Simon Jackman, the Chief Executive Officer at the United States Study Center here at the University of Sydney, which stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. We're delighted to be co-hosting today's event, <clears throat> pardon me, with our great friends and, and partners at the Age Society Australia um, to talk about, uh, uh, the state of Indo-Pacific strategy and its evolution under the Biden administration and, um, and to assess that evolution. Um, look, just a little bit of background from me so we can we can cut to the chase and, and get into this terrific panel that I'll introduce in a moment. Um, certainly for us at the US Study Center, um, with a focus on US foreign policy and strategic policy more broadly, its implications for Australian equities, The question about where Indo-Pacific strategy lands, um, US Indo-Pacific strategy lands, is is just one of the central questions being pursued here at the United States Study Center. I I think it's fair to say that we have all collectively witnessed a strategic reawakening, if you will, in the United States, a reprioritization of the Indo-Pacific and understanding that that is the locus of, of, of now great power rivalry. Of, of where the future, frankly, of, of, of the planet is going to be played out uh, and, and over a relatively short time frames. That strategic reawakening, though, if you will, uh, in the United States, how is that translating or not into policy? Uh, and in a way that, again, we look at with our hats firmly on as Australian based analysts interrogating that question uh, from the perspective of what's in Australian national interests. Um, I remember. I, I think it was. It was. I, I attribute this this form of words to Kevin Rudd. That under the Trump administration, um, the United States um, had an attitude about China. It did not yet have a policy uh, or a strategy. And, and I think the question is: Let's change the word China there to Indo-Pacific. And and to some extent, does the same hold true for the Biden administration with respect to? Um, in Indo, the Indo-Pacific. That's the broad frame uh, f- for today's conversation and it's perfect that the United States Study Center is joined today uh, with, with experts and analysts from the Asia Society um, based here in Australia uh, to help us in- interrogate uh, that proposition. Let me briefly introduce the participants um, in, uh, on today's uh, uh, session. Um, to moderate, um, we're joined by Emma Connors, who was the Southeast Asia correspondent from the Australian Financial Review, and previously she was the editor of the perspectives and review sections for the paper. Um, uh, Richard Maud, uh, we'll, be, we'll be hearing from Richard shortly. Richard, of course, is the Executive Director of Policy at the Asia Society Australia and a Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute and, of course, for many years, Uh, a senior um, uh, official um, inside uh, the Australian government and the bureaucracy with with deep experience in foreign policy and and national security. In particular, I got to know Richard in his capacity as deputy secretary Indo-Pacific group uh, in DFAT. Uh, And of course, he also served as uh, a senior representative of Australia at the East Asia summit. Um, Richard's credits also include Um, Leading the task force that generated a really important document, um, and I remember its launch and and the prep uh, quite well that Richard was deeply involved in that is, of course, the 2017 uh, foreign policy white paper. Um, uh, We're also joined by Alina Noor, uh, who's the Director, uh, Political Security Affairs and Deputy Director, and of course I misspeak, Um, um, she is not joining us from Melbourne or Sydney or Canberra, she's joining us from Washington DC. Uh, and we're delighted to have Alina uh, on the call. Her work focuses on security developments in Southeast Australia, in Southeast Asia, pardon me, uh, governance and technology and preventing and countering violent extremism. Um, From the US Study Center, uh, two of my colleagues will be joining us today. uh, And in um, uh, Susanna Patton, uh, who's with the Foreign Policy and Defense Program here, at the United States Study Center and has recently joined the US Study Center after a career in government, uh, principally as a senior analyst in the Southeast Asia branch at the Office of National Intelligence, Australia's Peak Intelligence Assessment Agency. And also joining us from the US Study Center, Ash Townsend, who directs our foreign policy and defense program here at the United States Study Center, which covers a a vast array of issues. uh, clearly, as I said in the intro, um, most of what we do, most of what I know about this topic comes from the great work uh, by Ash and his colleagues here at the US Study Centre. Questions about Indo-Pacific strategy and, and the, uh, the development of it out of the US, its implications for Australian equities is core, core business for Ash and his colleagues and delighted to have both Ash and Susanna from the centre uh, on, the, on the call today. And with that, um, I'm going to hand over um, proceedings to Emma, Emma Connors from the Finn Review to lead us through uh, the balance of our time. Thanks Emma.
1: Hi, okay, I'm off mute, that's correct. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, it's pretty early still in Singapore, so that's my excuse for taking a while. Um, but let's jump right in, as Simon suggested. This is such an important topic. We've had 10 months now for Biden White House, so we're getting a bit of a picture emerging. There's a lot that's happened in those 10 months. So I'll start by asking um, Ashley and Eleanor to give us sort of the, the, the context. You know, what does the US, Indo-Pacific, China strategy look under President Biden? under President Biden and what should its objectives be? And how different is it to the Trump administration's approach? Ashley, perhaps you could kick us off.
2: Thanks, Emma, and uh, thanks uh, all for those uh, kind introductions. It's great to be partnering uh, with our friends at Asia Society again today. And uh, Richard, Elena, we're really grateful to share the stage with you. Um, So, I mean, this is a difficult question in many ways because, of course, the Biden administration, despite being in office for 10 months, has not yet articulated um, uh, what its Indo-Pacific strategy will be and certainly hasn't uh, produced um, at least a public policy document on its Indo-Pacific strategy, which is much anticipated uh, at the moment and which we hope to see in the coming months. Uh, But looking at the administration's rhetoric um, going into um, uh, to office, uh, President Biden uh, spoke uh, very broadly about the United States being back as a leader internationally. And, of course, at that time, he prioritised issues of the Indo-Pacific and issues of, uh, of competition with China in his and his uh, senior cabinet uh, members' um, 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 official discourse. Um, but we have now watched for 10 months Um, how that has translated into policy reality. And I think uh, it's fair to say that the region is still left uh, wanting certainly more information, but clearly more investment and prioritization and resourcing by the United States when it comes to investing in competition with China here in the Indo-Pacific right now. Uh, it's not all bad news. The administration has done a really important and good job in restoring, um, if you like, the status quo um, of US policy in the region following the tumultuous years of the Trump administration. I um, In particular, when it comes to US relations with its allies and partners here in Asia, um, the Biden administration has as we would have expected and as they said coming in, really sought to restore those bilateral relationships. In the case of Japan and South Korea, we have new host agreements in place for US forces. In the case of the Philippines, whose relationship with the United States has languished under both Duterte, but really through the Trump years as well, Um, beginning actually in the the Obama administration, that has been restored with a new visiting forces agreement and uh, and a restoration of an arrangement that will in time Uh, strengthen or have the potential to strengthen America's military position in the Philippines and of course with Australia the country that perhaps fared best through the Trump years um, the Biden administration has continued with uh, that uh, alliance integration agenda we'll talk about AUKUS a bit later and has certainly continued um, um, uh, to to prioritize many of the issues not all but many of the issues that matter to the US-Australia alliance and broadly across All of those partnerships, the Biden administration has taken, if you like, a liberal internationalist frame to restoring um, uh, relationships in Asia. That is to say, um, in contrast to Donald Trump, uh, this administration has brought the United States back to the forefront of pandemic uh, response and economic recovery. It has begun to champion human rights issues again climate change, engage with multilateral architecture and so forth. So there is this sense of a, of a holistic return of the United States to the status quo ante, if you like, uh, but it's what's not there that is a concern. Um, the, the, the Biden administration, when it comes to competing with China, and it's rearranged the deck chairs a little bit, shifting the rhetoric from great power competition to strategic competition um, uh, with China, it has really invested most in globalizing this competition and investing in the economic and technological foundations of American power for this competition, both enterprises, which are important, Uh, but both enterprises which will take some years to bear fruit and certainly to pay strategic dividends in Asia. So there are initiatives like bringing Europe more into the um, Indo-Pacific set of architecture, um, finding ways to bring Europe into infrastructure financing in the region through the Build Back Better world, um, prioritising as well the long-term strengthening of future capabilities of the US military. And, And what it hasn't done is focused Um, in terms of the immediacy of the challenge that China presents in the region, concrete resources on turning its reality, uh, its rhetoric rather, into reality. So when you look at the United States economic agenda, again, an issue we'll touch on in a moment, Um, um, it doesn't have one when it comes to a trade strategy for the Indo-Pacific. When you look at the way the United States is preparing for potential uh, deterrence or military challenges with China, it is not investing the resources in US position and US posture, logistics and so forth in the region, as sort of exemplified by the Pacific deterrence initiatives treatment by this administration. And look, just, just finally here, Um, I think you can see the difference here in in terms of two of the administration's signature accomplishments in Asia so far. On the one hand, you have AUKUS, um, got a lot of headlines, has been touted as a major step up of the administration in Asia, but really is an agreement that's going to take decades uh, to bear fruit when it comes to the submarine component. And at the same time, you've had the elevation of the Quad to a leaders level, and again, much Uh, trumpeted internationally with regards to the Quad's new and emerging role in critical technologies and climate change, in infrastructure financing. But again, things which are important that will take a long time to bite. So I think what we want to see from the administration is really much more investment in what's going to matter over the five to 10 year horizon, not just in the 2030s.
1: Some more meat on the immediate bones, perhaps. Eleanor, would you like to jump in there?
3: Yeah. um, Thank you for having me in this conversation. Just maybe to piggyback on Ashley's comments, I think there are some key distinguishing factors about uh, the elements of what we've seen so far with the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy. And we've seen these elements in, as Ashley said, uh, in statements, but also in the interim national security strategy. And I think we're all anticipating a full-blown national security strategy sometime next year. And some of the distinguishing elements, I think, that have been largely welcomed by Southeast Asia um, are are the return to multilateralism. Um, A bit more of a nuanced approach to competition with China. So there's been a lot of uh, muted messaging in terms of this strategic competition, uh, nominally at least when the administration communicates with Southeast Asia. Um, but also, this I think importantly, a sense of humility about the U.S.'s own flawed system of democracy in its foreign policy approach. Um, I think what the Indo-Pacific strategy should be depends on who you ask, of course, right? And um, from Southeast Asia's vantage points, I think there are going to be questions about what this values-based approach this emphasis, a return to emphasis on democracy and human rights, how that will play out in the region, Uh, particularly since many countries in Southeast Asia have been on the receiving end of a lot of preaching about human rights and democracy in the past, not always well-received. And whether this muted rhetoric about competition with China will manifest, how it will manifest um, in the longer term as we move forward, particularly with arrangements like AUKUS and and the Quad. So let me leave it at that. I know we're short on time.
1: Sure. Well, now that we've brought up China, Richard, perhaps you could talk us through how you see um, the China policy, Biden's China policy, interacting with what we know so far about the Indo-Pacific approach and what could be the trajectory of US-China relations?
4: Yeah, thanks, Emma. Look, like, um, like uh, Biden's Indo-Pacific policy, the administration's China policy is very much a work in progress. But I actually think that US-China relations are at a really interesting point right now uh, and worth paying attention to. So the Biden team came to office with what's sometimes described as a, uh, a counter-compete-cooperate model. So they said that they were going to compete toughly with China, Biden talked about extreme competition, but they also wanted to find some areas of cooperation and to put guardrails around uh, the competition to to, to keep it constrained to some degree. So you often hear the Biden team talk about the importance of America responsibly managing, quote unquote, um, competition with China. And over the Uh, course of um, the 10 months of the Biden administration so far, we have seen quite a lot of the competitive element. Um, Ashley mentioned the Quad and AUKUS. There's a whole bunch of things, other things with other allies and partners. There's a range of domestic policies, um, many of which have been continued since the Trump administration that go into that competitive basket. But we haven't seen uh, really any success at cooperation. But I think what's interesting about the last month or so is that we've now seen quite a lot of diplomacy uh, from the Biden administration. And in reasonably quick succession, we've had a phone call between President Xi uh, and Biden. We've seen the, uh, the plea deal that allowed Huawei CFO uh, Meng Wanzhou to return to China there's been a resumption of trade and defense talks. Uh, we had an, an almost cordial meeting between Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, mm-hmm. uh, and Young Jae Cher, and that's led to an announcement that there'll be a, a virtual bilateral summit between Xi uh, and Biden at the end of the year. And you know, some of this tends to jar a bit with the competitive elements in the Biden administration's approach and has led to some argument in Washington that, that the administration's China policy is incoherent or a bit muddled. But what I think it actually is, it's the ine- inevitable result of a model where uh, the Biden team is saying that US-China relations will not be either good or bad at any one point, but a mixture of both at once. But I think the really interesting question is, is this going to go anywhere? You know, is this going to lead to a significant breakthrough or a sustained lowering of uh, the tension in the bilateral relationship? Will it open up productive new areas of cooperation? Or is it simply a short-term pause um, and tactical recalibration? I think, well, the honest answer is we don't know. The odds are stacked against a big breakthrough, I think, Uh, There's the structural nature of the competition that's baked in pretty hardly now. The domestic politics in both uh, America and China really work against um, a big breakthrough. Uh, The complete lack of trust on both sides, Uh, the confidence in Beijing that America is a declining power and that compromise by China is both unnecessary and potentially dangerous for the party. All, All of those factors will push uh, the needle uh, towards the competitive end of the dial. But, 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 but for all of that, it's, it's worth watching. Uh, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if they did manage to work out a framework for this idea of uh, competitive coexistence, uh, you know, it's a low probability but high consequence event, including for Australian policy and our policy needs to stay flexible enough to accommodate that possibility.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking, I mean, it was only in March when we had that incredibly heated meeting between US and China officials at Alaska, you know, where there was walkouts and heated words. So certainly the tone has changed quite a lot since then. Let's, let's um, consider economic engagement. So it's time to enter the wonderful world of acronyms. And Susanna, if I could perhaps ask you just to give us um, sort of a brief pricey of where we are. I mean, as, you know, we've got now the CTPP emerging along with the RCEP, um, you know, is the US crafting an effective economic strategy for the Indo-Pacific? And and how should it, what should it do? How should it ensure it's not left being left behind, seeing as it's not part of either of those agreements?
5: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, sadly it's it's a fairly short and simple story, which is that the administration has been studied in its disinterest of regional trade arrangements um, most notably the CPTPP the successor agreement to the to the TPP Um, uh, by its words so talking about a worker-centric trade policy and by its deeds like letting trade promotion authority lapse and even more modest proposals like for a digital trade agreement seem to have been bogged down and come to nothing Um, and I think even more importantly perhaps is what the administration is not saying. Um, We're not hearing that kind of rhetoric that we used to hear from the US about the idea that Asia is the most economically dynamic region in the world and the US is going to be there for its own benefit and the benefit of the region. That that sense is really lacking. Um, And without that, you know, it's very hard to think of an alternative way for the administration to get a kind of cut through and positive vision and traction in the region because other initiatives like on infrastructure or vaccines or pointing to private sector investment are going to be bitsy and they're not really going to respond to the sort of the need to compete with China on the economic questions. Now, Mm. some people hope that sort of after the passage of the administration's domestic agenda or after midterm elections or in a second Biden term, things will change. Um, I think, uh, you know, we can't we can't predict the future. But one thing I think is pretty clear, which is that if it does change, it will be because there's a degree of bipartisan recognition in the US that, that they need to have an economic strategy to compete with China. And I think the role of US allies and partners like Australia, Japan, other influential voices in the region um, will be critical in, in making sure that the regional economic peace stays on the agenda um, and that there's still an expectation that Washington does bring something to the table. And there's a couple of opportunities to do that. The US hosting of APEC in 2023 um, is a good kind of... Um, what's the term, A reference point to encourage the US to, to build something by that point. Um, and of course, China's application to join the CPTPP is also something that should give pause um, to policymakers in Washington.
1: Well, certainly, um, Australia has been very involved in both those uh, agreements. Um, so I guess that is one point where we do depart from the US, but actually, can I ask you sort of to tie that back with Um, How is the US overall Indo-Pacific strategy coalescing with Australia's interests? Um, You know, the big acronym in the room is AUKUS. Um, So how does the establishment of that new agreement um, and the new force posture initiatives, I love that term, under the alliance, how will Australia be able to effectively maintain its own strategic autonomy? Um, Some have argued that we're now inextricably tied with the US.
2: So on on AUKUS and the forced posture initiatives, I might just comment briefly on on that part. Um, You know, I've been surprised by the commentary on how AUKUS and the forced posture initiatives might um, corner Australia's strategic autonomy. And the reason for my surprise is really because they're things that Australia has pushed for. They're not things that have been thrust upon us. And really, if you go back and you look at the larger arc of Australia's role um, and Australia's interest when it comes to US military presence in the region and US military support or the bilateral military relationship between the US and Australia, there's actually quite a lot of continuity, although there is going to be a step change in capability. Um, And and the reason I say that is Australia has for a long time, and it's in um, numerous uh, Australian government documents, including those that are Uh, that my colleague here this morning, Richard, has been involved in, um, that that Australia wants the strongest possible US forward presence in Asia. Um, It's also a long-standing um, element of Australian government policy to work with the United States in terms of strengthening force posture initiatives here in Australia, in part out of a recognition and a recognition that has been proven correct, by the way, that US force posture initiatives in Australia are also a net benefit for investment in Australian military um, infrastructure and Australian um, um, uh, military interoperability um, gains. So, so that's my reason for surprise. Now, of course, when it comes to the submarines themselves and the uncertainty over... You know, will it be an American-made boat? Will it be a British-made boat? I'll put my bet on a British-made boat with American agreement for the sharing of nuclear propulsion technology. Uh, but, but, irrespective of that, um, you know, the terms and conditions around that particular um, capability acquisition will obviously need to be negotiated properly to ensure sufficient Australian capacity to service and maintain ships here in Australia. But I think the announcement at Osmin this year around not just air land and sea, um, enhancements of bilateral US-Australian military um, um, activities and initiatives, but the fourth one on that list and the most important in my view, the establishment of a combined maintenance, logistics and sustainment facility here in Australia is actually exactly that. It is about... Um, the grafting here in Australia of the technical skills the know-how the the um the uh um uh, arrangements enabling legislation and um um, and uh and materiel in this country to be able to do more ourselves and so i view that uh, really as the united states giving australia uh, empowering australia in a way that australia has sought to be empowered and strengthen itself for a long time and i would just note there that if that is the direction that the Biden administration is going to go with other allies in the region. And if it's going to go in that direction on issues that are not as long-term as a submarine deal. So in the Australian case, the sharing of technology to allow Australia to manufacture um, uh, long-range missiles here in this country, which is something the Australian government wants to do, In the case of South Korea, we've already seen the Americans lift restrictions on the South Koreans to test and use longer range systems themselves. Then we are in a different era where the United States is more willing to see allies have um, a greater degree of control and independence in their military capabilities than before. And I think that's a net benefit for all.
1: Just to pick up on that point about um, how the U.S., might strengthen its cooperation in various ways with others in the region. Eleanor, could I ask you to give us a brief on what defines Biden's Southeast Asia policy? Um, you know, and has the US been doing enough to counter Chinese ambition and influence in this region? Um, and, you know, we just had this week the Malaysian and Indonesian foreign ministers um, coming out and voicing. Um, their concern about AUKUS and they have previously done so about the Quad. So clearly there is a bit of uneasiness uneasiness, um, in the region and perhaps you could just fill us in on on whether that would be expected in the context of the overall um, Biden policy towards Southeast Asia.
3: Yeah, I'll try a lot to unpack there. Um, So (laughs) Southeast Asia policy, I think, Again, we're still waiting for the defining elements of what this policy uh, will look like. But to the Biden administration's credit, I think there is and has been demonstrated sincerity in listening to the region. And a lot of that listening has actually borne fruit at this early stage, if you consider 10 months into the administration early stages. Um, And what I mean by that is that there have been efforts to allay some of the anxieties and concern in, in Southeast Asia about uh, the, the administration's policy towards ASEAN in particular. So there's been there have been a lot of statements about upholding and supporting ASEAN centrality. But that A laying of concerns I think only goes so far in reality and as you pointed out Emma, there have been some anxieties about what arrangements like the Quad and AUKUS mean uh, for ASEAN in particular and the centrality and unity of ASEAN. As we all know many on on this call and participants tuning in uh, have also been watching the region very carefully. Southeast Asia is an incredibly diverse region with various perspectives about uh, and levels of comfort about some of these arrangements um, like the Quad and AUKUS. You mentioned Indonesia and Malaysia, Emma. There are others who have voiced uh, their positive reception to and welcome of AUKUS, the Philippines notably. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, we've also heard the presidential spokesperson, Harry Rock uh, say that President Duterte um, has also voiced concern about AUKUS, so we're not quite sure where the Philippines stands on this, and perhaps some of that will be elucidated at uh, next week's ASEAN summitry. So there's a range of um, receptivity towards uh, AUKUS in particular, and I think those who have been voicing some of their worries about what this means in the long-term for regional stability like Indonesia and and, uh, Malaysia. Um, Those views shouldn't really be dismissed as kind of minority views. I mean, Indonesia is a major player in the region. And uh, one of the missing aspects of the Biden administration's uh, Southeast Asian policy so far has been this lack of um, a visit to, Indonesia in particular, but also to Brunei and Cambodia. Um, Brunei, as we all know, is the current ASEAN chair. Cambodia is the incoming ASEAN chair. So for all the support about ASEAN centrality, there hasn't actually been uh, much beyond lip service. Uh, There have been multiple visits to selected countries in uh, Southeast Asia that are perceived to be more like-minded, Singapore and Vietnam in particular, And so we wait to see over the next few months whether there will be an ASEAN ambassador appointed, uh, whether some of the remaining posts in um, Southeast Asia will be filled, and whether there will actually be more than just this lip service to ASEAN centrality beyond just picking uh, a select few from within Southeast Asia to work with.
1: Okay, I'd like to pick up on some of the themes um, there, particularly to do with Southeast Asia. But first, I just encourage the audience to, um, if you have any questions that pop up during the discussion, please put them into the Q&A box, because we do have a a fair amount of time at at the end of the panel for for questions. So keep them coming. Um, Susanna, can I just ask you, we, we just heard a bit there from Eleanor, a very... Good context for the um, US-India, how the US, what the US is doing um, with um, ASEAN, and and how the Quad and AUKUS have been received in this region. But how do those trends um, affect Australia's engagement with Southeast Asia? Um, you know, again, it's it's a big topic because the countries in the region are so diverse, but certainly. Um, there have been a few misgivings expressed i guess about about what's been happening in recent months but what's your take
5: yeah well there's i think there's been a shift in australia's approach to the region which is kind of yet to fully shake out in terms of the impact that it has on our relationships in southeast asia so over the past couple of years we've moved to a much more kind of robust approach to the indo-pacific in which we Seem to be conceiving of ourselves more as part of a U.S.-led balancing coalition against China, whereas previously we'd always been quite careful to distinguish ourselves and not depict ourselves as part of the kind of as part of that competition or or, or balancing. And arrangements like um, the Quad and AUKUS, I think, change that sort of balance in Australia's policy. Um, it would be naive to think that this will not affect our relationships in Southeast Asia, uh, whether for better or for worse, um, but it will have an impact. And I just want to echo what Elena said about, about Southeast Asian views of AUKUS, because I think it's really important to bear in mind that, you know, there are kind of two strains of thinking, this is a bit of a generalisation, but there are sort of two strains of thinking in the region um, about arrangements like AUKUS. One is that China is is a problem and that we need robust US balancing to help manage the China threat. And the other is the kind of the plague on both your houses thinking. So the idea that both the US and China are contributors to a more tense and unstable region. And those two strains of thinking are found to differing degrees across all countries in the region, including Australia. So it would be a mistake to just dismiss the concerns expressed by Indonesia and Malaysia and to say that those are only in those countries. Because as Alina pointed out, you also hear those similar concerns expressed in countries like the Philippines, which otherwise supportive so Australia needs to sort of seriously reckon with that and I think you know the best case scenario is that we continue to work very practically with countries on on their priorities while simultaneously pursuing our strategic objectives with a narrower coalition you leave the door open to the narrower coalition because you never know who might you know, fall through it one day, and you might be able to work in a different way with other countries as well. Uh, the worst case scenario is that we wrongly assume that everyone in the region secretly supports what we're doing, uh, because that will that will lead us to all kinds of problems.
1: Sure, I'll just stop there's a question that's come in that's sort of um, focused on the region. And I might flick it to you, Eleanor, because it sort of fits with the point you made about how the US hasn't yet gone to um, Brunei and Cambodia. Since in the last six months we've had um, Lloyd Austin and Kamala Harris in the region. Um, they went to Singapore and Vietnam, both of them. So would you, do we think the US approach has sort of become more functional and even, you know, economical in the region? So this is the question from William um, in Chong. In terms of is working and So very focused so that they're picking out the ones who they think they can um, achieve more traction with in this free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Sure, from
3: the window of the White House or the State Department or Defense Department in Washington, that makes sense, but how does that square with uh, this uh, rhetorical support for ASEAN centrality and what does it mean in the longer term if there are greater fissures that are going to be created from this uh, pick and and mix or pick and select from amongst the region approach that the U.S. is currently taking. Um, I think one of the concerns is that while the U.S. charges China with splitting um, partners and and allies in the region, um, the U.S. might actually inadvertently be doing the same by this with the selective approach. Um, so that also contributes to some of the, the hand-winging and angst that goes on within ASEAN at some of these meetings, uh, because there is, as as uh, Susanna noted, there are varying degrees of concern about China, but also about the US in, in
1: Southeast Asia. Hmm. Yeah, it's certainly been interesting to see the approach. Um, look, we would be very mischievous not to talk about Taiwan, um, which has very much been in the headlines recently, I wonder, Richard, if I could ask you um, to talk about what we, what the US under Biden is doing um, as far as the Taiwan policy goes and perhaps what they should be doing, Um, you know, and we've seen some pretty impressive saber rattling from China recently. Um, Is this sort of more of the same or Is it a
4: worrying sort of escalation? Uh, It's definitely worrying. And I think um, the core problem here, Emma, is that the the dynamic that's sustained a kind of uneasy status quo over Taiwan for quite a long time is now now eroding quite significantly. And there are a number of factors for that. Um, A very important one is that we're, we're now seeing in Taiwan the full expression of a very distinct um, taiwanese identity Um, the second is of course that's coinciding with a china that's changed very significantly under xi jinping a much more assertive uh foreign policy a more uh, uh a less patient foreign policy we've got a much more nationalist china and also critically we've got a much more capable chinese military so you know the the ability of China, in a military sense, to put pressure on Taiwan has grown significantly. And all of those factors are driving this intensified uh, Chinese pressure. I should, I should, I should say that um, most people who watch this issue very, very closely don't think that a full-on um, invasion of Taiwan is imminent. Um, China would very much prefer to win without fighting. It wants to wear down. The Chinese uh, the Taiwanese military wear down uh, the Taiwanese people. it wants to give an impression that um, unification is inevitable and it's futile uh, to resist it. Uh, but still we, we can't be certain um, how much that, uh, that calculus, you know uh, the cost, how much cost they're prepared to wear to force unification might change in coming years, particularly as China's military modernization, rolls on. So it is a very precarious uh, position for us. And short of full-on conflict, there are many more ways in which China can put uh, coercive pressure on um, on Taiwan. So what can we do about it? I think the, the Biden administration uh, is trying to walk uh, an appropriately fine line here. What they're trying to do is to tell the Chinese that um, America does not support a change in the status quo, so they, they wouldn't support a declaration of independence by uh, Taiwan, for example, and that they and that they will continue to give strong support to Taiwan, uh, but there will be limits to that. So that's one one sort of path they're walking, and on the other hand, they are doing what they can uh, to bolster Taiwan's security and to try and give Taiwan as much international space uh, as is possible. I think that's sensible and prudent, even if it's very difficult. a second thing uh, that has to be done really goes to Taiwan's own uh, capability and will to fight. You know, There's a quite a robust debate in uh, military circles in America and in Australia and um, other countries like Japan about whether Taiwan is actually spending enough on its own defense and, and spending the money on the right sorts of capabilities. So that's another thing that's really important. I think thirdly, we've seen, uh, particularly this year, an attempt to internationalize concerns about um, uh, Taiwan. Um, so we've seen Taiwan raised in meetings like the G7. Uh, it's being talked about in the Quad. Japan has been very clear about how much Taiwan security matters to itself. And that, 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 further internationalization is really important to make it clear to uh, China's leaders that this is not just a matter between it and Taiwan and America, that many other countries have a big stake uh, in this. And I think that leads me to my last point about what we can do, which is to be very clear uh, with China's leaders that any attempt to force unification of Taiwan Uh, would not be seen as a fait accompli by the world, that it would come with very significant costs uh, to to China and that it would be a folly to underestimate our our collective willingness to respond to a forcible unification of Taiwan. Um, So it's an immensely challenging situation, but we're not without agency and there are things that we can do uh, to help manage tensions down and support Taiwan.
1: Just to stick with Taiwan um, for a moment, Ashley, you mentioned at the beginning that we are still waiting for the formal um, Indo-Pacific policy from the US. Do you think we've got quite a lot of clarity on the Biden approach to Taiwan?
2: Well, look, in a defence sense, uh, you know, we don't yet have a national defence strategy. I I guess we expect that after the NSS, the national security strategy and the Indo-Pacific strategy. And and the national defence strategy will, we expect, give some clarity on how the administration views um, deterrence. You know, does it still want to stick with the Trump administration's um, fairly pointed Um, um, framing of a deterrence by denial strategy, which, by the way, was always there in US policy, but was really re-emphasized during the Trump years, um, and which I think is really what is important for the security of that first island chain in which Japan, Taiwan, Philippines sits. Uh, And also, you know, whether or not they see deterrence um, uh, by denial, that is preventing China from uh, gaining what it wants to gain. In that first island chain including in Taiwan at acceptable levels of cost and risk whether they view that as the appropriate strategy in which case all of the points Richard just made with regards to strengthening Taiwan's capabilities its will to fight its capacity to fight is really important um, but I would say it goes even further and it's actually strengthening the capacity and will to support Uh, that uh, denial-based strategy by Taiwan amongst other US allies and partners in Asia before the fact, not just in terms of a response. And it's certainly at this point in time, a little unclear as to whether the administration is going to go down that path, or whether in fact, the debate which is currently underway in favour of more of a, a, a response strategy, a horizontal escalation strategy, which would Um, de-emphasize at some level the forward military-based elements of US strategy and double down on the response, the punishment, the other costs that could be imposed on China were they to try to seize Taiwan. So I I don't think we have clarity on that at the moment. And I do think that that's a problem. I I think the other point I want to make on this is that um, in US strategic and defense circles, there is a real Uh, debate and certainly I think a a general consensus that the balance of the 2020s is the most dangerous period when it comes certainly to Taiwan and possibly to uh, China's potential use of military power in Asia more broadly. And there are different reasons for this. In fact, people come at this question in very different ways, but the consensus seems to be uh, that China's military will have sufficiently modernized and be sufficiently operationally capable by, mid, by mid-decade, by certainly by the 26, 27 um, uh, years, um, and America's investment in new, um, very capable future technologies won't yet have come online and that that window of opportunity for a range of different reasons, whether China's on the ascent or the descent, could be capitalized on. I think that's in part why this internationalization of the Taiwan issue um, um, uh, has been pursued very urgently and that's another point of continuity between the Trump and the Biden administrations. I also think it, it, it sheds some light on this other debate that we've had this morning about you know Australia's changing role as a balancer in the region. I think all of this is premised on the fact that there is now a shared sense in Washington, Canberra, Tokyo and other parts of the region um, that the United States can't play its traditional role. The United States cannot extend conventional military deterrence and defend its allies by itself, and that increasingly other Asian allies and partners, and I include Australia in that, will need to play um, in a varying kinds of supportive roles. That's not to say that we're going to be having boots on the ground in every potential regional contingency or deterrence posture, but it is to say that I think there's an awareness of that, that that is what lies behind this fairly important um, 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 step up in, in Australia's active regional strategy and framing of it in those terms, Japan as well, and that that is unlikely to change quickly.
1: I think we focused quite a lot on um, the military side of things and, and defence strategy, but we did hear earlier on in the Biden administration about this Build Back Better um, initiative and there is one for the US, but there's also an international component. And I wonder, Susanna, if I could ask you um, to sort of answer some of the audience's questions about this. Um, we've had one from Amrita um, Mali at Save the Children. Um, you know, do, do we think this Build Back Better has a chance of succeeding? And um, we've also got one from Wong Le Tu. Greetings to all the panellists. Can you elaborate more on this Build Back Better and how it could also bring in the post-COVID recovery. Um, And I think, Susanna, we did speak a bit about this, about how the US could be doing more in a unified pattern across um, Southeast Asia. So yeah, what's your view on this Build Back Better?
5: Well, I think the question about whether or not it can be successful is a really interesting one because I guess that draws the question then what 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 is success in this context and if by success we mean sort of countering China's Belt and Road Initiative, um, you know which in any case seems to be sort of declining in terms of the level of of effort and resources that 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 is going into that then. You know, I, I think it's high. It, it is a bit questionable because infrastructure is probably best conceived of a, as a long term investment, especially when you're talking about infrastructure that relies on on private capital. It's not a deployable asset where the US can just say, okay, you know, we need to um, build our influence in this strategically important country. We're going to make this happen. You know, within within a period of of say months you know that that's just not realistic it's going to be a long-term investment and you know over decades yes I think something like build back better world initiative could be really valuable but I think one question that um that I have about it is really to what extent is it going to be focused on the region that is of greatest strategic importance in the competition with China, that being the Indo-Pacific and particularly in Southeast Asia, because we've seen from the G7 that, that this initiative is at a global level. Now, if that means that there are significant additional investments from European countries to kind of lift the overall level of resources available, then that is good. But we don't know that. And the G7 aspect of it, we probably we've heard that projects would be discussed at the next summit. So that's again taking a long time. And if it means that 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 the focus is diluted away from the Indo-Pacific and towards a more global approach, then I think that would that should be of concern.
1: If we're looking at events um, that are coming up very soon, um, The ASEAN Summit, I think, Eleanor, you touched upon ASEAN Summitary Week. I think it's next week. Um, And we do have a question from Hunter Marsden. With the summits coming up, do you see a window of opportunity for the Biden administration to work with ASEAN to coordinate a more effective diplomatic strategy to deal with the Myanmar crisis? There's a question for you.
3: Yeah, I suppose it also depends on what effective means. And obviously, the the question of Myanmar is very complicated. If Mm. not, we would already have solved it uh, years uh, in advance. I think the U.S. is already doing a lot of the groundwork in the run-up to the summits next week. You see this, for example, in Councillor Derek Shohei's trip to the region, his visits and discussions with Uh, In in Singapore, for example, to try to restrict international access uh, for the Myanmar regime's accounts held overseas. Um, So a lot of that is prefacing, I think, what will be further discussions in uh, ASEAN next week. What more can be done? So far, the U.S. has really been quite supportive of ASEAN's role. I know there has been a lot of frustration within and beyond ASEAN about how far, just how far ASEAN has gone or not gone in resolving the crisis. But I think it's appreciated within the region that ASEAN has been sort of given this leadership role, so to speak, to try to resolve some of the conflicts and tensions on the ground. Now, whether this patients will eventually run out again within ASEAN and beyond, uh, largely depends on, on Myanmar. And mm-hmm. I think that some of the recent developments that we've seen, particularly with the decision to not have Minang Hlai attend the ASEAN summit I think is a welcome development for ASEAN. Now, whether that will translate into something more substantive is um, highly improbable in in the immediate term. And I think the sooner it is that we come to terms of what exactly ASEAN can and cannot do, then the quicker it is that we can try to judge ASEAN for what it really is instead of what we expect it to be.
1: Thanks, Elena. I think next week might be um, quite interesting. We're seeing, you know, some you know, splits happening in Asia and about Myanmar. So it'll be interesting to see how that that plays out. Um, I have a question from Alejandro Reyes. I think Ash, if you could take this one. Um, so this is talking about rivalry in the US, uh, US-China rivalry, but in the tech sphere. I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about um, AUKUS and the submarines. Do we see further decoupling and realignments in the tech field particularly in regards to strategic tech
2: i mean i think that is a trend that is likely to continue as much because of china's own ambitions to become um, a a leader in strategic tech you know artificial intelligence synthetic biology um, um, you know quantum and so forth um, on the one hand and also The United States and some of its allies push to strengthen um, the protections against the sharing of and the input um, of US resources into sustaining China's tech industries as well at a corporate level, both of those kinds of defensive measures, if you like, will mean that that project continues to play out and that will functionally lead to a greater degree of separateness, uh, whether that's decoupling or not, um, 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 there's there's a debate around, but I think that that is likely to happen. Um, Will AUKUS play a key role in driving this? I don't think so. Um, Let's remember what AUKUS is. AUKUS is not an alliance. AUKUS is a framework for um, the US and Australia and Britain to do something they've already done more efficiently and hopefully more quickly and with less export controls and ITAR restrictions and um, impediments to sharing sensitive defense technologies and know-how and technical skills. Um, So to the extent that other um, aspects of critical technology go through AUKUS in the coming years, and and certainly we expect that that will and hope that will be the case um, from an Australian perspective, that is likely to graft greater um, 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 capacity here in our industrial base and innovation base, but it is not likely itself to be a driver of decoupling.
1: Okay, thanks. Well, look, we've covered a lot of ground and there's some really fantastic questions coming in, but we are getting close to time. I would like to ask this question that's been put forward by Trevor Rowe. Um, Does the Biden, I guess what he, does the Biden have an Indochina policy that is sustainable over future US administrations? I really like this question because obviously we have seen so much disruption um, in US policy through the Trump administration and now the realignment under Biden. So I thought it was a good one to circle back and it probably will be our last one. Richard, could I ask you to take that one on?
4: Um, Thanks, Emma, and thanks, Trevor. It's a great question. And of course, it's, it's an incredibly important one. It's one that's on the minds of policymakers everywhere. They won't say so, but it's on the minds of policymakers in Australia. It's certainly on the minds of policymakers in other parts of the region, including in Southeast Asia and Japan and Korea. I think there are two ways of answering this. One way is that there are some inbuilt sustainers of an American Indo-Pacific strategy. The China challenge is not going to go away, as we talked about earlier. Um, There will be strong competition. um, uh, And America has very significant national interests in this part of the world. Um, And don't forget, there's a lot of continuity between Trump administration policies and Biden administrations uh, on the Indo-Pacific. And it was the Trump administration through its national security and national defence strategies that shifted America's uh, focus very strongly away from the sort of uh, 9-11 counterterrorism era and towards state competition uh, with China in particular. Um, So, uh, if there is um, if, if uh, there is a switchback to the Republicans in the next election, we will see some continuity. I do think there is a pretty big important but here, though, and it goes to the state of the Republican Party at the moment. There's absolutely no signs of any recalibration or rethinking in the Republican Party uh, about the catastrophic end to the Trump administration. Indeed, really, uh, we're seeing Trump entrench. His influence and Trump-like candidates uh, in the party entrenching their influence. So there's no there's no going to be shifting back to a Republican Party of an earlier era. I mean, there's still a very long way to go. I know, but that that seems very likely. The Republican Party is still intent on uh, weakening American democracy in quite extraordinary ways, including by taking power away from. Uh, officials to certify state-level elections and putting it in the hands of political bodies. So uh, if not Trump as a candidate next time around, then likely uh, someone uh, like Trump. And that really probably does presage a return to America, first uh, approach to the world, a high degree of um, nationalism, including economic nationalism, high degree of populism, Um, a a divided, polarised America, which will be a weaker one. Uh, And if Trump himself, well, Trump has no real framework on China other than he doesn't like the trade deficit and what works for him politically. And a second Trump administration, if that's how it happened, would be, I think, a very wild ride. And that would be very damaging for America's global standing all over again. Uh, And from an Australian policymaker perspective and policymaker's uh, perspective in the region, um, we work with what we've got, which is a Biden administration. We will work with the continuity we might get, but we also have to carefully hedge against the possibility that things might change again, quite dramatically.
1: Mm. I think that's quite sobering, particularly bearing in mind what Ashley said about the, um, what's going to happen in the middle of the decade. I guess, and, and and the different pressures building up to crunch time around there, certainly a tough time for policymakers um, and an interesting time for the rest of us. Look, Thanks very much um, to the panel. We are right on time now, so I think I'll call it to a close, but I think you'll agree. Thank you also to the, all the audience for joining us. We had great registrations and viewing, so I hope everyone got something out of this. and. Thanks to US Study Centre and Asia Society for organising.